All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. And welcome back to another episode of Your Brain on Science. Uh, today, we have a very special guest with us, Russell Housefield from Symposia. We're going to be talking about psychedelics and capitalism. Um, you guys might have heard me, you know, make little comments about this in the past in my other episodes. So I'm really, really excited to have Russell here to actually sort of talk about this and, and dive deep. Um, so to begin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Russell. Such an exciting, I think, episode, such an exciting conversation we'll have. Um, so do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what brings you to the field of psychedelics for our listeners that might not know? Yeah, gladly. Um, and thanks for having me here, Zarmin. This is really cool. Um, my name is Russell. I write for a publication called Symposia. Um, we report on a lot of different issues in the psychedelic space, um, but particularly kind of the intersection of psychedelics and capitalism and um, sort of the business tactics um, developing in the psychedelic space. Um, I am particularly interested in psychedelics um, because of my own experiences with them. Uh, first and foremost, uh, was kind of what got me interested in writing about the space. But I think what keeps me uh, kind of in this space as a reporter um, sort of reflects the change that's happened in the field over maybe the last six or seven years, which was that coming out of journalism school, I wanted to write about psychedelics basically because I came up through the D.A.R.E. education program. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with that, but it was an anti-drug program. They'd bring a cop in to talk to you about drugs, things like that. And that sort of laid a groundwork with a lot of misinformation around drugs in my own life. And uh, so when I first got into writing about all this, I was interested in sort of the destigmatization around psychedelics, around weed, um, and sort of discussing things from that angle. Um, I think at Symposia, we often describe ourselves as sort of reformed cheerleaders around psychedelics. <laughs> um, and what that means is we all kind of got into it from that angle of an interest in destigmatization, an interest in saying, hey, I've had these experiences, my brain didn't melt, um, and, and things like that. However, what sort of kept me here reporting on the psychedelic space was there was a big shift around sort of the capitalization around psychedelics um, and the kind of for-profit industry that developed um, kind of out of, not out of nowhere, but definitely between, I went to like a psychedelics conference in early like 2017, yeah. I think, or 2018. And it was kind of like, you know, you heard about MAPS research and um, sort of what they were doing. And I always thought of it as like, a, oh, this research is cool from that sort of destigmatization angle. Um, and then within about a year after that conference where people were talking about psychedelics and religion and psychedelics and art and psychedelics and music and, and these really creative endeavors in the space yeah. to 
jumping into all of a sudden you have investor conferences and um, all this corporate stuff going on and for-profit companies forming. And um, so that's sort of where my own beat has shifted um, as far as coverage goes. Um, and it uh, yeah has not slowed down from that angle. It, uh, it's only really sped up. The bubbles kind of continued to expand in that area. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, absolutely. I, and you know, so we see this a lot. I think we've been in a unique position to see all of this happen with marijuana, right? Like we saw that become more mainstream, become medicalized, decriminalized. And then all of a sudden, anyone that had money was sort of throwing money at this, right? To see if they could have a stake in anything. And I really see that happening with psychedelics. So I appreciate, <laughs> I think it's so, so, so important to be talking about um, like the for-profit aspect of something like psychedelics that have such, you know, meaning outside of just, uh, I don't know, the, the clinical stuff that was coming out of MAPS at the time, right? And everything that we know about it now. And we'll get a little bit, we'll definitely get more into this as we speak. Um, so so you mentioned that this is, you know, what you do as a journalist and, and what you're interested in writing about. And I read your Corporadelic series on Symposia, which for all our listeners, please go on to Symposia and read this series, read all of these publications. I think so, so interesting and so important if you're in the psychedelic field, right, to understand that there's this whole other world um, that exists in the field. Um, and we'll get into the specific, uh, specifics of your Corporadelic series. Um, but I just want to ask, you talked a little bit about this, but one motivated this series in particular, like specifically the things that you talk about here. Totally. That was um, with Symposia, I originally started kind of writing about what the future of MDMA looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and from that sort of destigmatization angle and while writing about that, what started coming up was all these um, all these sort of um, things that didn't square between what MAPS was shooting for and what I kind of thought the counterculture wanted, which yeah. um, what really kind of cued me into that was that Rick Doblin talked to me about bifurcated the potential of bifurcated scheduling for these drugs, which is basically like, okay, if MAPS gets through FDA clinical trials, then its specific MDMA might be rescheduled and uh, the criminal penalties might lower on it to some extent down the line potentially, but your general MDMA on the street will probably stay criminalized, stay high schedule. Um, and so that was kind of what started shifting my own mindset about, wow, what are these, what is this research all about? Was it for, was this for the users or is this for something bigger, something more, um, corporatized, medicalized? Um, and sure enough, things began shifting in that direction. Um, the term corporadelic kind of stemmed from two people, Catherine McLean, who was a Johns Hopkins researcher, and Brett Green, who was the co-founder, a co-founder of Symposia. Um, and they coined it to basically discuss this corporatization of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So at the time we conceived of this corporatelic series, kind of the big name in the space was Compass Pathways, who I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm sure most of your listeners are somewhat familiar with. Um, that name was really coming into the picture. Um, and they had done this thing where they kind of came on the scene as a nonprofit and asked a bunch of professionals in the space for 
information for research sharing. They, you know, we're a nonprofit. We we just we want we have the best interest of these hospice patients in mind when they first came on the scene, and then all of a sudden they switched to a for profit and they became the first for profit sort of pharma entity in the space. Mm-hmm. And that was a really big deal um, and really shifted the entire scene from there on. At that time, people were kind of discussing this switch from nonprofit to for-profit, as well as Bob Jesse, who was sort of an initial pioneer of Johns Hopkins psilocybin research. Um, and they were discussing his statement on open science and open practice with, uh, or open praxis with psilocybin, MDMA, and similar substances was what his document was called. And basically what he was trying to get people to do was agree to participate in open science and continue participating in open science. And th- so there was this kind of um, clashing of ideas happening at the time we were thinking about writing this series yeah. where a lot of people were sort of justifying the for-profit aspects of Compass Pathways while people like Bob Jesse were trying to kind of remind people that this whole field was founded on the principles of open science, collaboration, um, and that kind of stuff. And then we had just gotten word of this conference being held um, called, the, I think it was the Green Market conference on psychedelic investing. I think I just botched that name, but it was held by the green market report in in a kind of swanky WeWork ballroom in New York. Um, it was totally pay to play. They had like slides in their, in their deck where you could pay $25 to be on a panel, or you could pay $5,000 to like have your own panel and some extra affiliate marketing through green market report. And so there's just all this really interesting financial stuff going on, pay to play conferences all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having conversations with um, Symposia's co-founder, Brian Normand, and uh, our managing editor, David Nichols, about this need to kind of take readers' hands and like lead them into this encroaching dystopian wonderland of corporate psychedelia or corporatelia, and sort of introduce people to some of the characters that are appearing, some of the mindsets that they have, some of the talking points that they're discussing. Because when we would have conversations with people about this, a lot of people weren't cued into this whole developing side of things that was rapidly becoming the mainstream um, sort of way to look at this space, or at least the the way that the a lot of the psychedelic industry people were trying to pitch this to the mainstream as uh, these things you took in clinics that pharma companies would be developing, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so interesting. As, a, as someone that comes to psychedelics through, you know, personal experience, but mostly through science, like my journey has been through school and through research and, and whatnot. Coming to grad school was such like a wake up call because I was obviously doing the science, but I was also meeting so many people that were part of the corporate world, right? That were that were now mm. involved with with psychedelics, and to, this was the first time that I had seen something like this happen, right? Like, and maybe it was just part of like you know my naivety, like coming to uh, something within pharma, like big pharma. 
Um, but I think so, so interesting. And there's so many things that you said that I want to, I want to sort of touch on. So sure. let's, let's go back to this. We work ballroom. That's that green, whatever summit that you were in that I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. I last name. Um, and there's like, and this, you have this quoted in one of your articles. Um, someone was asked, why would you support capitalist endeavors in the psychedelic space? Right. Which is honestly the first question that probably comes to everyone's mind. Um, and this woman, I forget who it was, her answer sort of pointed to, oh, well, the cost of research and all these other extraneous costs, right, involved in that, in the medicalization of, of these drugs and, and the way that these big companies are sort of pitching it, right? These are these amazing life-changing drugs that can be used in a medical context to help people get better. And they're going to cost this much money. We have to, we have to make them cost this much money. They have to be for profit because of the money we're spending on research and all of the extraneous costs. But then you mentioned that companies actually spend way more on marketing costs than research and development. So this is, you know, clearly not a truthful answer. So I think a lot of people in the for-profit sector try to paint this as, I don't know, as a necessary part of of these drugs becoming mainstream. And Rick Doblin has gone on record to say um, that he doesn't oppose this capitalistic for-profit approach in psychedelics because it's what an inevitable part of mainstreaming. So I'd like to get your opinion here. Do you think this this for the for-profit organizations in the psychedelic space, first of all, should exist or can exist? And I have my own opinions here that I, I'll share. Um, but are they a necessary part of this like mainstreaming process? Or is this a lie that we've been told in the, in the name of capitalism? Do psychedelics need to be mainstream in the sense that, you know, they're packaged pretty and sold? to people who want a certain experience, right? This like really nice, pretty packaged experience that's very separated, honestly, from what psychedelics, you know, have been or this count, mm-hmm. you know, counter culture have used psychedelics for. So I think something really interesting. So what do you think? Yeah, that, there's a lot of interesting points to sort of parse out there. Yeah. That's, I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, what Deborah Borchardt, said which she's the the founder of the green market report um and sort of the comparison to that with the like what do they spend on marketing and r&d because that was sort of what we were trying to do with this series was be like look these are what they're saying to justify these moves and it doesn't add up like what they're saying does not add up um and rick doblin like you said he um he he really likes to play both sides of the of the coin. Like for years, he talked. To, he kind of hyped up maps because they were creating anti patent strategies and um, things like that for MDMA. And then as soon as Compass Pathways came on the scene, he was sort of the the person who ushered them in and and really gave them a lot of the validity and clout that they needed to um, have agency in the space. Um, and he has talked about how for-profit pharma company interest in this space is um, actually like reflects well on maps endeavors because that's what they've been trying to do from the get-go basically. Um, so yeah, he's a, uh, he's sort of played both sides of that coin and the, I guess the idea of for-profit companies in the psychedelic industry, I'm not completely opposed to mm-hmm. um, just as a, as a general thing. But I am opposed to a lot of the tactics that are used in for-profit contexts. Yeah. So 
those look like particularly things like walling off knowledge through in-house research and patents. Um, that was kind of a huge switch in the, the ethos of the space where you saw this field go from a bunch of kind of tight-knit collaborative researchers who were generally fine sharing data with one another and um, and discussing their research and and helping each other out to this environment where now you have all of this competition and it's all based around proprietary knowledge and um and and sort of walling off your own knowledge um so that other people can't profit on it so that's sort of what the issue that i see with the for profit encroachment in the space is it was already a field that was sort of being founded on small pools of knowledge whether that was small pools of participants in studies, lack of long-term follow-up data, issues with the methodology of the studies. Um, and there was the potential that those those things could course correct if that information was able to be shared freely, discussed freely, criticized freely, and, and sort of worked with as a community. Yeah. But now we have this environment where these companies can do their own in-house research, they can create their own patents, they can sue each other, um for trying the same things um and it creates this environment where it's just not nobody's helping each other out really and the science in my opinion can only get worse in a context like that especially when you have a for-profit um uh structure where people are trying to get investment people are trying to get people to give them money for this for for their research for what they're producing and you saw this with like the results that compass was allowed to release before peer review and stuff where a lot of people kind of came back and said hey there's a there's actually kind of a lot of weird um negative incidences in here that you didn't talk about in the press release you dropped and then saw a spike in your investment and stuff like that and and so you have the, these scenarios that come up where it's like, who is this good for beyond the people that are making money off of it? Certainly not the patients that they're trying to treat necessarily. Um, so that's sort of the issue I see with for-profits kind of encroaching on this space. And if the argument is that we need venture capitalist pharma buy-in to do good science, I think that's a pretty easily refutable statement because we've seen plenty of scenarios in which sort of capitalist pharma has not always produced good science or good results. Um, or complete results, right? Like very smart, yeah. like very smart dissemination of the result, like what we just talked about with Compass, right? Like very smart and strategic sort of dissemination of, of what they know and the science that they have. And you're hundred percent right that I think the science suffers, right? Like if everything now is basic, it's basically a competition, right? Everything's a competition. Like every company in the space wants to be the first people to reach X, right? Like to understand this about this drug and to be able to market this as a treatment for whatever. And I think that the science really suffers because now if you can't encroach on that space, right? If you can't also answer that question, then now it's, it's, their domain and it's the and what we know about this it, we get from them and I think 
that can be, you know, I want to say it, it could be so dangerous in the field of science. And Elena and I talk about um, like responsible reporting all of the time, because with psychedelics, that's one of the biggest things, right? People will read whatever headlines are out there. And whatever that you're you're putting out there, people are going to read and people are going to believe because not everyone has, you know, the skills to refute it. And I'll be honest, like, right, like there's a lot of areas of science outside of psychedelics that will will hear really, really amazing headlines about. And it's from big pharma companies. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of crazy. But when you sit down to look into it, it's a lot of strategic leaving this out or maybe padding this a little bit or being like, oh, no, 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 we're working on this. So that aspect of it, I 100% agree with you. Um, and then I think there's another another part of, of this, this is un that's unique to psychedelics, right? So these are now being you know, looked at as treatments for patients and, and drugs in a context, in a very clinical context. And in one of your articles, you talk about how there's this big idea in the field and specifically, you know, around the for-profit, I think, organizations um, that talk about making psychedelics boring again or, or <laughs> making these drugs seem less mystical. And basically the idea is to remove the stigma and maybe the grandiosity associated with the use of these drugs. And I think this is right. And you even mentioned this, that this is this has a, a role in helping us move towards legalization but I think there's some challenges to this, right? Psychedelics have a really, really rich cultural, spiritual, religious context that now with all of this, you know, we're, we're medicalizing it and that's an important part of it, right? Our clinical studies are really, really important in helping us do that. But we're now forgetting an entire aspect of these drugs that make them so special, right? That make them as big a deal as they are. And there's a little bit of a hypocrisy in this even, right? There's people that talk about using this and pushing this for medical only and, and pat patenting these drugs for specific use. Um, and it makes it so these psychedelics should be only used for this, uh, for everyone, for the rest of the world. And this is how the rest of the world should go about acquiring these drugs. But, you know, the people that are touting this for them, that's not the case. They can use whatever, they can use these drugs for, you know, whatever reasons they want and however they want and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, and you have this amazing quote, and I have to read this to everyone that you have in one of your articles. So all this to say that the people pushing for a medical only model for psychedelics seem to think that the privilege to take psychedelics, however, and for whatever reason they want is theirs alone. And the rest of them, rest of the world should have to traverse the boring channels of our tumultuous, expensive medical system in order to access these substances. Thus spoke capitalism. And that quote spoke to me so, so, so much because so, <laughs> so true, right? So interesting. We hear all these big figures and people that are in the for-profit field talk about how important it is to go through all these channels and, and make them, you know, accessible in a medical sense. But okay, what about everyone else that uses this, these drugs for not just the medical sense, right? It's, that's a forgotten part, I think, of psychedelics specifically. So um, I don't know. I just talked at you about this, but this is something that you mentioned that I really, really loved. So what what do you think are some of the challenges of this, right? Of removing sort of the mysticalness of these psychedelics to make them more marketable from the for-profit sense? Yeah, that's a that that whole um kind <laughs> of analysis there is is was something that 
was uh, I was really trying to get across through that series as I was sort of observing the people who were leading these for-profit medicalization movements. And I'll come back to him in a minute, but Christian Angermeyer is definitely a uh, a person who that analysis was based around. And I can say yeah. more to that in just a minute. But the the actual idea of make psychedelics boring is just kind of such a funny public relations slogan to try to promote to me because they're kind of like inherently the least boring things ever. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> so that's why we're looking at them, right? Like, because they're like these crazy, amazing drugs, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and the, the the person who kind of was trying to coin that was a guy named Shlomi Raz, which he uh, was like a, an investment banker or something before he got into psychedelics. And then uh, he co-founded the company Eleusis with uh, Charles Nichols to create um, anti-inflammatory psychedelics, because I guess that's something that the Nichols lab had had discovered might be a thing that could happen at some point, which to be honest, is really interesting. I think that's like a fascinating thing. But but he, he kind of put this article out in Stat News called Make Psychedelics Boring Again and talking about how his kind of the anti-inflammatory properties of psychedelics and how um he believed that like that was an original practice of indigenous cultures and stuff like that and it it was just complete bs like it wasn't true at all um so that was sort of where we picked up on that phrasing was from shlomi and dave wrote a whole article about it on symposia that's really good um but yeah, the point they're trying to make with that is put these drugs in a clinic supervised by a doctor, make it so boring that like your grandma could get into it or something, you know? Um, and yet, like you said, the same people who are promoting that slogan, that idea of medicalize this, um, put it in a clinic, like one of the bigger proponents of that is someone like Christian Angermeyer, who I don't know how familiar your listeners would be with Angermeyer, but he is a German billionaire who founded Compass Pathways. Um, He then founded Atai Life Sciences as a way to funnel money into Compass Pathways. And Atai has since grown into this kind of big umbrella psychedelic company incubator um, with a bunch of other psychedelic companies that they own majority stake in. Um, So he's really set himself up to be one of the biggest profiteers on this industry um, he's good friends with a guy named Peter Thiel. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, he was one of the founders of PayPal, went on to found a company called Palantir, which is a giant data aggregation company, um, has had a lot of controversial issues. Their CEO, Alex Karp, has gone on the record saying things like, yes, our company has been used to kill people um and and things like that they they've worked with like the cia and uh police departments and things to aggregate a bunch of data for them and um all that to say angermeyer is one of the biggest proponents of you should never do this outside of a clinic you need supervision and you need to be doing this for a medical diagnosis meanwhile angermeyer's first mushroom experience was on somebody's private island (laughs) and he he's he'll be the first to tell you i've never had depression i was a happy child my parents raved to everyone about how happy i was as a child and i've never let that go and my whole motto is um sort of toxic positivity and 
And like, he will not go on record saying he's ever had a mental issue. And yet he'll go on record talking about how these mushrooms changed his life, how he was lucky enough to have a supportive group of practitioners with him. If you look into that, it turns out that those they were like actors from LA who he's friends with, who gave him the mushrooms, like not therapists, not counselors, not doctors. Like he went to somebody's private island and took mushrooms with some actors from LA and came out of his trip thinking, wow, I get Bitcoin now and I need to figure out how to make psychedelics into a business is like what he said on record before. Um, and so those are the people who are telling you to make, or who are, who are saying we need to make psychedelics boring again. The, the, this like German billionaire who's positioned himself to make the most profit off of a medical industry and a boring industry, and yet kind of thinks he can go do this on his own. Um, but the, that just to conclude that slogan of making psychedelics boring again is, an attempt to bridge a gap um, PR wise for the industry, I think, um, which is that these have been associated with sort of anti-war environmentalist leftist movements for a long time, uh, the hippies. And there's a big push right now to bridge the gap for people who would be anti-psychedelic in the past, like conservatives and, um like soccer moms and you know just like your your average like suburban person there's this attempt right now to to produce all this pr spin to get them into the medicalization of psychedelics and that's actually become one of the main things i i cover in this space anymore is is what these uh what these tactics to court these new populations look like um and that was definitely one that was a that was a line they were really trying to use at the beginning of this switch from a from an academic to a for profit focused uh, field. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's you know it's vital to I think having for profits be successful because if they're the ones that are uh, I don't know making these drugs boring or maybe understandable and and removing all of that really rich cultural history all of that context behind these drugs then now they're just drugs that you can go get prescribed and you can get treated with right but you have to you will have to go through their channels to do this because mm -hmm. no longer do they exist for you in any of those other contexts that do exist right so there's like where it's almost like an erasure of all of that. And, you know, mm -hmm. me, it, I get this. A part of me understands why this is the case, right? We live in America. We live in a capitalistic society. People want to make money. People need money to live, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that people see a lot of money in, right? There's something that you can, you can, I don't know, invest in and get a lot out of. But it's at the expense of, I think, so many people. And specifically, I want to now address um, this cultural context, this religious context that I keep bringing about, uh, bringing up. Um, I think so many people, when they think about these drugs and the way that it's pushed by this for-profit sector, um, is that these are drugs synthesized in the lab. They're going to be used purely medically. 
And this is true for the research and the clinical paradigms being explored, right? Um, and it's really, really important in this sense. But it's really, I think, irresponsible to forget, or maybe in the case of these investors and CEOs, to actively ignore, right, the fact that these drugs are such an important aspect of indigenous cultures and religion. You know, these groups of people that have been continually marginalized, right? I think there is an immense meaning behind the use of these drugs and they don't, you know, we all know they don't need to be synthesized in a lab. Um, now, do you think that investors should, first of all, care about this, right? I personally, I personally do, do think that they should. Um, but is there a way to address this in the capitalization, you know, of these substances? What are your, what are your thoughts reg uh, with regards to specifically, I think the cultural and the religious context of these drugs now being, you know, put head to head with the the corporate world and, and making these available to everyone, but for cost. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. There is, there's like this whole there are two kind of different things going on right now as far as attempts to legalize psychedelics, which is the kind of corporate medical way and then sort of the religious freedom way yeah. um, that a lot of groups have gone, like the Santo Daime Church, the Native American Church um, with peyote, et cetera. Um, but I, I think you're right. And in my experience, most psychedelic companies are not thinking about ways to give back to or incorporate sort of indigenous wisdom or um, religious psychedelic wisdom into their practices. That's not to say they aren't incorporating sort of magico-religious beliefs and, and things because they are. And I think that's sort of to a detriment sometimes when <laughs> they're, they're trying to produce evidence-based kind of science. Um, but it's interesting to see where it gets incorporated and where it doesn't and how these corporations are using indigenous knowledge. And um, if they are, I find for in the corporate space, a lot of it is like virtue signaling or clout and PR. Um, so you see stuff like Thai Life Sciences donating kind of what amounts to like a drop in a bucket for them to indigenous reciprocity initiatives or uh, field trip tweeting uh, sort of like the definitions of indigenous words and, and ideas like shamans and things to support their app um, was something I covered in the past, like yeah. uh, using this imagery and stuff. Um, so I kind of, I don't know, I'm skeptical when I see indigenous stuff come up in the corporate um, space overall. I kind of think that they, the iconography and the ideas of indigenous groups get used to promote companies' medicalization efforts without a whole lot of concrete support. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I fall thinking about that and, and kind of what I see in the space. Um, so and, you mentioned, yeah, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that no matter how, the, how much they say they want to support indigenous communities and religious freedoms and things like that, they... I think that the corporate world can only say so much or go so far with what they're willing to let slide. Like you look at CEOs or founders of these corporations and like mind meds, J.R. Ron at one point said like, I want nothing to do with decriminalization people and stuff like that. And I think that's, that's sort of where 
where the line gets drawn is yeah. will will they support decriminalization efforts in indigenous religious use if they believe it's going to hurt their bottom line if they think people will use these substances outside of profits they can con can profit from um i'm not sure if if they would support it to that extent um in a in context where you don't need medical supervision and you're not getting into their clinics and and stuff like that there's um this thing where I think they they're they're comfortable talking about it on social media. They're comfortable sort of signaling towards like yeah, this is great that there's this history there. But I think overall they draw the line uh, uh, somewhere around um, non medical use. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned something really interesting as we were talking. So you said something about an app. So now this medicalization of psychedelics, well, I mean, I guess I take that back. The medicalization of uh, even marijuana has sparked this huge, um, what is it called? The wellness industry, right? This like, God, and this speaks to, <laughs> now I'm going to get, now I'm going to get on, on my thing, right? This talks <laughs> to our society's need for like quick fixes or something that they could look to, to be like, oh, well, I'm sick in this way, or I need to take care of myself in this way. Let me buy this, this, and this, and this is going to fix me. Right. Mm -hmm. So this whole wellness industry, every time I think about literally the words wellness industry, Gwyneth Paltrow comes to my mind. Oh yeah. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Because of, you know, because of everything that she touts and a lot of it is not really, you know, heavy research base and, and whatever. Um, but the psych psychedelics are now, starting to become part of this wellness industry. And a lot mm -hmm. of it is through, I think, the spiritual aspect of these drugs. So people, I don't know, maybe take advantage of is not the right way to say it, but people really tout the spiritual and uh, religious and deeply personal aspects of psychedelics in this wellness industry sort of field or, or whatever it might be. Um, and you actually have an article called Calm Down, and this is about the Calm app, which I think a lot of people are probably familiar with, but um, I think it's a free app, but there's a lot of things that you can buy in it. Obviously, that's where they're going to get money, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you present a lot of interesting ideas in this article, um, and specifically the idea of making wellness accessible through something like an app, right? And then it's going to have a bunch of add-ons that you're going to pay for, and this company is going to make a lot of money. Um, and actually, Compass Pathways is partnered with the company that created the Calm app. Um, and another company is actually trying to make an app to track digital biomarkers to, I think, help people or whatever. Um, and I've heard some talk about, you know, trying to incorporate psychedelics into this, this wellness culture and this wellness industry. Um, do you think that there, there's some challenges in this for psychedelics? Or do you think that, that this is going to happen with psychedelics? Like, you know, a lot more, I think, about this wellness industry. Do you, do you think that it's coming for psychedelics, you know? <laughs> I think it has already come for psychedelics. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my pet projects um, that I've never, I don't think I've ever published anything on, but I have a growing library of, of uh, TikTok influencers who <laughs> like microdosing TikTok influencers. That's oh, like a whole my thing. God. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so that's something I, I like to collect, but um, I'm strange like that. No, but I mean, I, the, I, the amount of wellness sorry, industry. Oh, sorry, gone. The TikToks, the amount of TikToks now that I see about, it, 
I bet you everyone has seen this, but like people talking about what is it? Those like green juices and Mm -hmm. we'll talk about psychedelics specifically microdosing. There's so many like self-proclaimed wellness coaches and Mm -hmm. get a little bit more specific about this later, but all these, there's a lot of also people that take training courses and certification courses about psychedelic therapy, you know, that might not necessarily have any real like research or evidence-based anything in them but you you, like you take a class and and you get a certification saying oh yes like now I am a certified psychedelic guide right Mm -hmm. I'm a psychedelic aficionado and I have all the knowledge and I'm gonna you know disseminate it to the world and they become part of this wellness industry and these companies just profit so much off of this and the incentive is is the money that people are going to pay them right because people want to be involved in whatever way that they can be. And I oh, I just think it's so interesting. And we could talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Sorry, I just had to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. And a lot of a lot of it's a cash grab and a lot of it is um, sort of baseless or like a shortcut to work in the industry, in my yes, opinion. Yes. But um, but yeah, the the article that you mentioned, the calm down one, yeah. there were kind of two things I wanted to look at with that article and the first was that there there's a huge overlap between the wellness industry and the psychedelic industry not just from sort of like what they have in common but also an investor base overlap like you said the partners um with compass pathways from calm those were two two the founders of calm were two of the earlier investors in compass pathways and they were kind of brought on as strategic partners so was tom incel who worked for the NIMH for a while and is now kind of creating this digital um, health tracking app that at least when I, at the time I wrote the article, they were strategic partners with Compass. I'm not sure what that list looks like at this point, though I'm pretty sure Tom Incel is still involved with Compass. Um, so that was sort of one of the things I wanted to explore. A New York Times article around the time that I published this came out called The Capital That Ate Wellness Is Going to Eat Your Mushrooms, um, which was all which was talking about all the wellness-focused venture capital firm excitement about psychedelics too. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot of issues with that whole industry that are very quickly bleeding into this industry. Things like this kind of Silicon Valley venture capital ethos of disrupt anti-regulation, move fast and break stuff um, that you see in the, in the wellness industry, a lot of times where it's like pushing all these supplements and things that haven't, they're not FDA approved. They're not anything like that, but Hey, you can, you can sell them and you can say it's going to boost your brain power and stuff. And um, that's, I think that's really a questionable uh, thing to have at play when you're dealing with such vulnerable patient populations, at least in the wellness industry, I don't know, it's just as predatory if I'm being honest, but to some extent, it's like a little, like sometimes they're not pitching like cure your PTSD with this. They're just like, hey, this might make you peppier or something, <laughs> which is like a little less dangerous to some extent. But um, but yeah, it's kind of scary when the same people investing in these sort of anti-regulated wellness products are the same people investing in psychedelic medicine. Um, Just a little bit of a concern there. And then there's the concern down the line of this kind of granular biomedical tracking through wellness apps. 
Um, which my colleague David Nichols has spoken about a lot and written about a lot. Um, and this aspect of all these companies, you see Robin Carhart Harris has some app. There's Field Trip had an app. Um, Compass was developing some kind of app or at least partnerships with apps. And our medical establishment doesn't have a lot of safeguards in place for your medical information in digital contexts. Like we have HIPAA and stuff like that, but a lot of times that doesn't really reach to um, like health apps and things like that. Um, There's a lot of great areas because this is so new, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then you have, so you're, you have your data being aggregated by these health apps and these, these companies and then sold. And that's, um, if you want a really deep dive into this, the book Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff really gets into this whole industry of um, data packaging and selling. But if you want like a really quick snapshot of what this can look like, there's a company called Swoop that uh, <laughs> aggregates biomedical data from sites like WebMD, from wow. medical apps um, and things like that, where you might have just clicked a sure, accept cookies uh, button at one point when you were using this website. And then those cookies included aggregation of data that is then sent to for-profit companies who package that and sell it to advertisers. So through like Swoop's page, you can look at like how they package this information and they'll sell advertisers data that's so granular that they can spe specify like, okay, do you want to target 35 year old women without a college degree who have Crohn's disease and have this level of income? And they have hundreds of these categories that are like that granular. Um, and so that's a concern down the line too, of if people are accessing these sort of unregulated apps, unregulated wellness apps and websites and things and giving them their medical data, are they just going to be continually targeted based on the conditions that they admit to having or the help that they're seeking out um, by advertiser? They're being targeted by advertisers down the line based on the information that they give over. And most people don't think about that. I don't usually think about that unless I'm like researching it. So that's sort of a, a scary thing down the line with all the interest in apps that seems to uh, to be at play. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to get away from apps, right? The phones and everything, all this technology is only getting more targeted. And, uh, you know, a lot of it does help make our lives easier. But you mentioned this a little bit earlier. These, you know, people that are going to be looking for these solutions are usually people that need help of some of some kind, right? People specifically when they're if they're coming to psychedelics in a clinical context, either have some, you know, some psychopathology, some depression, maybe anxiety, maybe PTSD, people are really looking for help. And if these, you know, channels exist to target these people with these drugs, you know, it's very much for for profit. But I also want to point out that these drugs are not going to work for everyone. And this mm -hmm. happens a lot that everyone jumps on the ba the bandwagon and you see it's working for some people, but it's really not working for other people. And this creates a lot of, I don't know, disillusionment. Maybe that's not the right word, but people become upset and people get angry. These drugs don't work. They don't do anything like mm -hmm. oh, this is fake. Like this research is fake, whatever. So I think this, it could also, there's such like a, 
a balance to be made here because there can be such big, you know, a big, I'm losing my words here, but people can sort of speak out against it and it, it could actively be playing against your own goals. And I think that goes right back to the irresponsible maybe reporting or mm-hmm. it's, it wouldn't be, it's not going to make you money if you tell people this, this is great. These drugs work and they're going to help you, but they're not going to help everyone. And they're not always going to be beneficial, right? You, you don't want to say that because people are going to be like, then why am I, then why am I coming to you? Right. People are looking for a panacea, something that's going to help you or, or maybe fix you quickly. And that's yeah, just, a miracle cure. Or something. Exactly. Exactly. And that's just, you know, it doesn't exist in this world. It's just not going to exist. And mm-hmm. we don't talk about it in psychedelics. And that's one of the biggest things that for-profit companies don't do is talk about the negative aspect of all of these drugs. And that's, you know, in the long run going to actively work against people. And I think we're just, we just haven't gotten to the point where these drugs are obviously like widely available enough for people to be like, hey, well, this didn't work for me, right? We have clinical trials where we have these results and, you know, there'll be a sentence or two in the end where they'll say there were, you know, X amount of non-responders or on the graphs, we'll see a couple of points that maybe increase in their anxiety, depression, whatever, after the psychedelic use. But we Mm -hmm. don't really talk about those. But, you know, as these, as these, marketing tactics or whatever become more more widespread and these drugs become more widely available this population of people is going to increase and i don't know i think that's something that that's not being thought about that's not being addressed and as a scientist that makes me really really upset right it's like it's irresponsible to tout these as panaceas and that's mm-hmm. i mean that's what the for profit for-profit field is sort of based off of you can't say that these aren't going to work for everyone because that's just that's not going to get the buy-in that you're looking for so right as a as a for-profit business you have like you can claim and I'm sure plenty of people who work in the for-profit space want to help people obviously absolutely but the reality of a for-profit business is also that you have stakeholders that you're trying who are trying to make money on your business that you owe returns to that like your goal is to make money at the most very base level and so yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna do things to screw yourself over in that department that's just sort of the reality of being a for-profit business that I think needs to be addressed and and understood from like an ethical standpoint is like yeah these companies can talk a big game about ethics and stuff but there's got to be somebody watching them (laughs) because they're never going to admit the worst stuff because that's just bad for their bottom line. Um, and just the, even just starting with treatment, things like treatment resistant depression, treatment, uh, major depressive disorder, these these kind of conditions where this already might be someone's last resort. Yeah. Like that's kind of what's really scary about them being pitched as miracle cures is if this is some if they if someone's tried two different medications talk therapy for years and they're still struggling with this and then they hear that psychedelics have cured a bunch of people's depression and anxiety and stuff and then then that doesn't happen for them yeah like it's really disappointing really disheartening and can exacerbate those those kind that kind of thought pattern of well I'm never getting better than I guess if this was like the last if this was the last thing that all these people were saying worked then and it didn't work for me like where do I go from here and I think it sets up a lot of people to have that experience are you familiar with uh 
the term the pollen effect pollen effect oh yes 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 do you want to tell that our was, listeners <laughs> uh well yeah it's kind of that that effect after Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind book came out promoting a lot of this research really positively, where people began coming into clinical trials with really high expectations and then experiencing disappointment. I think it was coined by Tess Narani, or at least he discussed it in one of his papers where he talked with uh, Johns Hopkins researcher Albert Garcia Rameau about this, um, what was happening in their in their psilocybin studies where people were kind of coming out of no, not out of nowhere, but prior to Michael Pollan's book, people weren't showing up with quite as high of expectations for this stuff as they were following the release of this um, very sort of positive book. Highly publicized. And, you know, so we're talking about, you know, people maybe being disappointed with the outcomes, but first of all, people have to get to this point. This has to be accessible enough for people to even try it. Right. And I think this for-profit field does nothing for the accessibility of these drugs. Like we haven't even Mm -mm. started talking about that aspect of it. And this is something Elena and I talk about with the clinical trials, but (laughs) most of these clinical trials have been, first of all, mostly white people and mostly white Mm -hmm. men in like cities, you know, in bigger cities, uh, people who have access and understand what these clinical trials are, right? I'm Pakistani, I'm Muslim, like my family, I have to explain to them what psychedelics are and like what I'm doing. And, you know, psychopathology, depression, anxiety is rife in my culture and people from my culture. We don't Mm. even have access to these drugs. And mostly that's because we don't understand them. We don't know anything about them. They haven't been made clear or available to my people. And that's a very specific example, but there are marginalized groups. There's people of socioeconomic backgrounds that are not able to reach these clinical trials, don't even understand that these clinical trials are going on. And now imagine we're going to make these drugs for profit. And now there's a price associated with getting there. And that I think just adds another layer of inaccessibility to something that we're actively trying to help people with. Right. And I think this Mm -hmm. just the big pharma in general um and the amount the the money and and the cost of of things in in our society in this society that we pay for our health care and right like exorbitant amounts of money mm-hmm. um, i think this accessibility issue with uh, the corporatization of psychedelics is something that people might be talking about but i don't think people are talking about enough because this is even something in clinical trials that I don't think has been fully addressed. People are actively trying to address it. Like here, even in my lab in, in Cody Wenther, Dr. Cody Wenther's lab over here at UW-Madison, we're actively looking at uh, making the therapy itself more culturally accessible and open to everyone, right? Because again, these are drugs that induce profound religious, spiritual experiences. But mm-hmm. what's religious and spiritual for me is not going to be the same thing religious and spiritual for you right it's all context it's all it's all cultural and and all of that and now oh god just imagine that we're putting another sort of you know wall in front of reaching help or getting help and I think that's something that really really gets to me and I think about do you do you have any idea about like the accessibility of these drugs like is that something that's being talked about or addressed in in the for-profit sector um, I certainly hope so, but definitely, like you say, not enough. Um, I think there's two really good points there. The financial accessibility, like 
when mm -hmm. I was writing the corporate Alex series, I think the price tag on potential MDMA therapy down the line, if approved was like $10,000 total, um, which is huge. I couldn't pay that. <laughs> and yeah. so, but then like you say too, if we're talking about rolling out psychedelic therapy to a mass market and most of the research was white men, like how are we going to, how would we expect everyone to have the same experience that those trial participants did or how are we going to roll this out and on a mass scale without more data on how other population groups react to these drugs or ha have experiences with these drugs I think is a really interesting question to address when I um was first kind of getting into reporting on this there was um like MAPS was trying to lead like a, a kind of BIPOC focused study with Monica Williams, um, which was shut down at UConn. Um, so like the efforts that I have seen to specifically address this have been like shut down and things like that. So it's interesting. And you can see that the, uh, the industry is sensitive to this point too. When we reported on that shutting down of that trial, um, the conference that I first heard about it at, Rick Doblin had said, our phase two trial had a hundred and some odd people and no black people in it. And I reported that. And then MAPS PR person reached out and said, where are you getting this data? What is happening? What, do you, what are you talking about? And I was like, this is directly from Rick. <laughs> and yeah. he was like, well, that's not exactly true. We had like, there have been people from sort of like BIPOC population. So can you please correct this quote to say, BIPOC not very BIPOC. many. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, okay. Like, okay, great. Cause that looks so much better. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, so I think um, there is like a sensitivity to knowing that they don't mm -hmm. include enough diversity, but I certainly haven't seen uh huge course corrections in that department personally yeah and you know what that might be all across the board i'm going to use an example that's very outside of like pharma and psychedelics how about mm -hmm. that cars when they're made the headrests on cars are made with like male male dummies with like the body the weight distribution of like males and i think the head height or whatever so if you were if i were to get into a car accident women females are I forget what the percentage is, but like highly more likely to suffer from severe neck injury as opposed to males. And that's because oh, of wow. the way, the way, literally the way that our cars are made. Right. And that was done a while ago and it wasn't addressed. And that's how cars are sold. And that's how, you know, that's just what it is. And I'm surprised that there hasn't been like any, any lawsuits, but it can just also be, you know, like we, what, what's it? We trudge onwards. We, we push forward despite not knowing like whatever i think it's mm -hmm. just such a disservice to to first of all the goals of your own company right to make i don't know to help people no one's gonna say the bottom line is always to make money right but i do believe that a lot of these companies the people a lot of the people in these companies want to help people right that's what this is motivated by but i think you need to if you want to do that you have to address every aspect of it right like help all people we're not just trying to help one mm -hmm. type of people and and so on and so forth. But yeah, so that's, I think, one thing that is very interesting to me, especially in the corporate world. But 
do you yeah, have completely I've, agree. I've, yeah I've spoken so much at you and your articles have all been really really amazing and I've I've quoted some things at you even are there some things that you would like to talk about or share with our listeners or maybe chat about um that's a good question I know there was some some other stuff we could talk about about like the training programs and stuff considering that the collapse of synthesis that kind of stuff um I had kind of done some I'd been doing research into that for a long time and then when the synthesis stuff came I was like oh maybe this is time to put out some of the uh the research that I've done around that and just to sort of touch touch back on the training programs and stuff happening right now is that there's there's really no standards no, absolutely not. No, you <laughs> so, go, you go in, you, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what the basis is to get hired for a lot of these to, to train mm-hmm. people. You go in and you get a certification and now you are a psychedelic guide or a psychedelic aficionado. Like that's crazy. Like I've been mm-hmm. in grad school. I've been in grad school for four years and I can tell you that I have so much to learn about psychedelics and helping people with psychedelics. And the fact that people, you know, we're selling these training programs where you can sit there and, and go through a class or a couple of classes or me, or, you know, let me, let me give them credit, like a week of classes and come out and think that you're, that you can, you know, teach this to other people is dangerous, I'll say. Yeah. And that's the thing that I found in researching it is like you said, yeah, sit through a week of classes or, or they could charge you nearly the same amount for a year. And nice. and no, it's not like, it's not, it's like a complete wild west scenario where like some of these people are pitching apprenticeships. Some are pitching a week long virtual class. Some are pitching um, a year long thing where you're part of a cohort and you discuss with each other once a week and then watch video sessions other times and, and then go to some retreat in uh, somewhere where it's legal to take psilocybin or something like that. But yeah, just talking about the lack of of standards as far as charging for these classes and then what they actually entail is is kind of wild. And then there's, we were kind of getting at this earlier, but the, the big thing is there's zero guarantee that these certifications are going to mean anything. Yeah. Um, and very few of them, if any, can guarantee that their certificates are going to be officially recognized once any of this is legal. Um, I think that's sort of my biggest takeaway from the trainings that are happening right now and the businesses people are setting up to train psychedelic practitioners Mm -hmm. is when I directly sort of ask them like what official bodies are going to recognize this what um where can you apply this this certification most of them kind of were either really vague or specifically said things like this certification is in-house um we have people in our orbit who respect this cert- certification, things like that. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Uh, just talking about sort of this capitalization on the industry, I think a lot of it is um, sort of grabbing for cash right now. Yeah. Um, and it's another, you know, it's another kind of way to take maybe advantage of like, like people that really want to be involved. Right. And mm-hmm. get that, right. Like that's, I'm in psychedelics as well. And I want to help people with psychedelics. And there's a lot of people that feel that way, but don't have the luxury of going to school for like ever and ever. Right. Or d- might not necessarily have the time or the bat or whatever it might be, but this is these companies offer offer a good like pre-packaged, easy to digest way of being involved. And also you mentioned, right? Like 
who are these going to be recognized by these certifications, right? And most of the time it's it's in-house like, oh, well, we recognize it. So it's another way to recruit p- people to your brand and to tout your brand, right? It gives you a little bit more credibility. Well, we have X, Y, and Z people who have come through our programs or like they work for us and they believe in our program and they believe in our mission. So I think, you know, it's twofold a little bit. It's to make money, but it's also now to further that, right? Now you're churning out more people that are going to help you, I guess, make more money even. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. My favorite was even one of the responses I got from a training company who they'll basically, they charge a ridiculous amount of money. And then their response to like, where can people use this certification was, we don't guarantee that this certification will be able to be used anywhere. And we also don't guarantee any work through. <laughs> so like, <laughs> they're selling the certification and they're like, yeah, and we can't even really guarantee that we're interested in having you facilitate for us after we train you and stuff like that. So that kind of made me laugh yeah. uh, when I got that response back. I think there's just so many different things happening all at once, right? This corporation Mm -hmm. is not just one thing. It's not just now a big pharma company is running clinical trials. There's so many different aspects to it, so many different ways to make money and so many different ways to make people buy in, which I think is very unique to psychedelics, right? We have this whole other aspect of this as a wellness um, can be used as like a wellness drug or whatever and and you can buy into these training programs and there's a lot (laughs) yeah and just the way it's being rolled out is like completely scattershot too which is like i've i can't think of another industry that has had this happen where you've got like colorado and oregon where they're saying yeah you can go do facilitation potentially with without medical licensure and things like that whereas uh, all these other companies are trying to take things through the FDA and and there's this completely scattershot approach to how you can practice with psychedelics, how you can use psychedelics, how you can sell psychedelics. And I can't think of anything else like that. Like, could you imagine if if Adderall, like yeah, in like Utah what? and like Florida, you could just go like get that from the gas station <laughs> and everywhere else it was like a prescription medication, like it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so unique to psychedelics. So, you know, this begs the big question, this huge psychedelic capital bubble, this investment boom, this crazy capitalization. Do you see this getting bigger? Do you see this continuing? Do you see it plateauing? Or do you see it bombing at some point? Like, what do you think is going to happen? What's your opinion here? <laughs> it's going to happen in the field. Yeah, it's that's a great question because- Probably two years ago, I would have said, I see it continuing to expand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did from like 2020 till now. Yeah. However, now we're seeing it sort of bomb. Like you look at feel, like companies like Field Trip and yep. their stock performance is like ridiculously bad. Um, I think Ronan Levy, their like co-founder just left the company, pour one out for a psychedelic capitalist OG there. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah one of the only companies that you see in the space who has been able to stay sort of consistent is like a company no one talks about called gh research which Mm. still experienced a drop in their stocks and stuff but the difference between them and a lot of the rest of the industry is that from the get-go they were not really making appearances at stuff like the green market psychedelic conference on psychedelic investing 
more so they were going to institutional investors like banks and funds and things like that and securing institutional investment, which tends to be not quite as volatile as retail investors, retail investors being like you and me, like if we were to put some money into one of these companies, um, we might be more prone to take our money back when when we see things going bad. Um, whereas institutional investors tend to coast a little longer. Um, so you see GH Research kind of doing better than a lot of the other companies in the space because most of the psychedelic industry was founded on retail investment. Um, and so the bubble is kind of popping right now. So I guess what I see in the future is less of like this big bloom of an industry and a lot more shedding of the smaller, low quality companies in the industry and consumption and kind of consolidation by the larger companies like Atai Life Sciences and uh, entities like that. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that's definitely where we're headed. That's sort of what I see too. And, you know, in terms of the research as well, the places, the companies that are doing um, these larger clinical trials that are doing more complete, I think, science are probably going to be the companies that stay around a little bit longer. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of those smaller places that maybe rely on science from other places or rely on their board of scientific advisors to really, really sort of point to their next, uh, you know, research question or, or small trial or whatever it might be. I think the end might come for, for those next, but mm -hmm. Definitely interesting. I think it's been a crazy ride. I was in, I came to psychedelics in the year 2015. So I was a freshman in college. Um, and at the time there wasn't really big, you know, like there wasn't companies, there wasn't really a big investment in, in corporate dealia, we'll say. And I really, I guess only learned about it when I got to grad school and everything, but this had been building for a while, right? It started, it, it always starts with that first big finding and that first big mm -hmm. scientific finding. And I think it's been growing for a long time, but it's time for it to plateau and, and sort of, you know, come down and, and stabilize at a, at a lower point than it's been now. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because um, I'm the same way I came into kind of the psychedelic research right around that time as well. 2015 to 2017-ish was kind of when I was first really getting interested in the research more so than just like reading Arrowhead trip reports and stuff yeah. like that. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but what I found in some of my research recently was that there was actually like a European commission of pharmaceutical companies in like 1990 that hired some consultant to put together a, um, a summary of the potential for a psychoactive drug industry in the future. And so like there yeah. were pharma companies as far back as at least 1990 considering mm -hmm. this. And I mean, you look at like Hoffman and stuff patenting LSD in, in way earlier than that, but um, but post sort of drug war um, instigation, there was at least some European conglomerates of pharmaceutical companies looking into an industry there. Um, and I thought that was, a, that, I just had no idea that there was interest that far back. Um, That's interesting. In the yeah, potential for an industry. No idea. No idea. Very cool. Yeah. Oh God. So much here. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? 
Um, I think right now I'm sort of spent. I can hear my voice frying a little bit. So this might be a good place to end. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Thank you so much, Russell. That I think was such a great conversation. I learned so much. Um, All of our listeners, I implore you to go and read the Corporate Delic series along with all the other amazing publications on Symposia. Um, There will be an accompanying blog post to this episode and I'll link all of these articles and I'll put in all my favorite quotes because there were so many. (laughs) So please, please go and listen. Um, And thank you so much again, Russell, for being on the podcast. It means a lot. Um, for all our listeners, please, uh, as always, subscribe. Um, YouTube coming out soon. Patreon coming out soon. Bicycle Week happening soon. Some crazy, crazy Ooh. stuff. Yeah. So stick around. Thanks, everyone. Bye.